Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Well, hello, buddy. Good to see you. My name's Nate. If I haven't met you, I want to welcome everybody who's joining online as well. Hey, we are wrapping up this series, um, What is the Gospel? Just a little quick review. The word gospel, euangelion, is how you would have said it. Literally means good news. And this is how Jesus described his, his message and his actions. This is how the New Testament writers described it. So if you lived in the ancient world, uh, one of your greatest fears is that the gods were arbitrary, no matter what gods you served, and they were typically quite angry. And in order for you to have a peaceful relationship with the gods, it was up to you. Had you appeased their wrath? Had you been good enough? Had your moral performance been acceptable? And so people just lived in fear. Well, when somebody came to a city, they said, have you, have you heard the good news? And they say, hey, the good news about what? They say the good news that God has taken on the responsibility of healing the rift between human beings and himself. The good news that God actually loves you, that God sent his, himself, his son in, in the flesh and he died for us. And now your relationship with God has nothing to do with your morality or how hard you work. It's completely dependent upon the grace, the goodness of God. And people would say, Oh my goodness, that is really good news. And so that's how this caught on. And now when we use the term the gospel, it doesn't always mean good news, but it should, it should. Now, as we've been working through this for five weeks, we've taken a little bit of time at the beginning to look at a different stunted gospel. Okay, stunted. Stunted meaning what it says isn't inaccurate, but we have a tendency to shrink down the gospel because it's so expansive and so broad that we shrink down the gospel to something that is comprehensible, easy to remember, personally beneficial to us. So we've used this picture as an illustration. If this represented the whole of what Jesus came to do and what Jesus taught, a stunted gospel just looks at a portion of it and focuses on this and kind of forgets everything else. So we've looked at the personal gospel, this idea that is true that Jesus came to save me and secure my eternity with him. But we forget that the gospel has much larger implications. We looked at the social gospel that Jesus came to end oppressive uh, regimes and realities. True, 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 but Jesus came to do even more. And I've saved this one for the last week. It has the most potential to make you angry, okay? I wanna talk for a second about the stunted political gospel, okay? Even mentioning the word, like the political gospel. And I gotta tell you, this is nothing new. Uh, this happened when Constantine became Roman emperor and eventually turned the Roman Empire into Christianity being its main religion. It happened throughout history with the Puritans and everything about the political gospel is accurate, but it's stunted. It misses a bigger picture. So we have this in our world today and it's a melding of my faith 
and my politics coming together. Here's some of the tenets of the political gospel. And remember, they're accurate, but they're a stunted perspective. So the political gospel in our world today would say this, that culture can be changed through political activism, legislation, and policy, which is true. The tenant would be the church has primary responsibility to impact government for God's purposes. There is a responsibility. Uh, we say this, that America is a unique place and has a unique role to play in human history. I love that it desires to see change. Jesus wanted to change the world. I love that it encourages civic involvement. I, I am so proud of the people who call this church their home, who serve on school boards, who run for offices, who do thankless jobs. It is so easy to be a cynic and just back up and like, eh, government this. I love it when followers of Jesus say, I want to be part of the solution. I'm going to risk my neck. I'm going to step out. So I love that it encourages involvement and I love that it avoids passivity. Now, what are the dangers though? Like if I shrink my gospel down to just this whole kind of a political uh, realm, here are some of the dangers. We have uh, like the history of our nation is very young, right? Relatively speaking, our history is beautiful, but it's not perfect. Okay. Even some of the founders of our nation had a stunted gospel. And I've got an illustration to show this to you. And I know this can get a little bit disturbing, but uh, let me show you this picture. No, I'll explain it. I don't know if you would recognize this, but this is found in the Smithsonian. It is the original um, you can buy copies of it today for $31.49 on Amazon. This, this is the Jeffersonian Bible. Okay, the Jeffersonian Bible. Um, Thomas Jefferson edited the New Testament. Brilliant man who had such a profound impact on our nation. Deep God-fearer. But he retitled the New Testament, The Life and Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And he took the four gospels as he read them in Latin and Greek, and then he edited them. Can you see that these pages are different lengths? Here's what Thomas Jefferson did. Anything that he came across that he felt avoided the physical laws of the universe, he removed them from the New Testament. And so virgin birth wouldn't be found in here. Any miracle, any healing that Jesus ever did has been edited out. And so he brought together the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies about the life of Jesus. Now he said, you know what I deeply appreciate, and he founded his values and his life on, was the moral teachings of Jesus. So we have the benefits that some of our nation, some of his um, contributions to even our constitution, they were based out of this reverence for God, but even somebody as brilliant as Thomas Jefferson had a stunted gospel. And so how could this be challenging? Well, I'm just gonna give you a couple of thoughts. One, it can be challenging because I, I see that we tend to have confusion regarding kingdoms, okay? Confusion regarding kingdoms. I can make my political affiliation primary and my spiritual aff affiliation secondary. Is that I think, well, I'm a part of this movement, right, politically, and then my spiritual reality comes second. I gotta, I gotta tell you, if you're spiritually unresolved, you need to hear this, okay? This, this is really important for in your decision. When you follow Jesus, you become a part of a brand new kingdom and you have a brand new leader 
And your affiliation first and foremost is with the kingdom that Jesus came to establish on this earth. And then my other affiliations come secondary. Another way that this can be stunted is that my hope can become misplaced. I can place my hope in a movement, in a policy, in legislation, and those things will never operate perfectly. My hope as a follower of Jesus has to be in him and what he does. Never forget that only Jesus saves and that if you are a follower of Jesus, your allegiance is first and foremost to the kingdom of Jesus and secondarily to any kingdom of this world, all right? So it's good, it's positive, but if that's all I see, it's a stunted perspective of the gospel. It's an Americanized version of the gospel. If we know that's stunted, here's what we've been doing the last two weeks. We've been looking at the book of Acts chapter 19, written by a man named Luke. And in chapter 19, we have this perspective that looks deep into a specific city in the ancient world. The city is called Ephesus. It's one of the primary cities in the Roman Empire at the time. Estimated that up to 250,000, some would even say 500,000 people lived in Ephesus. It's one of the places where Paul stays the longest. In fact, he stays there three years. Last week, as we looked at the beginning of the chapter, we said this, here's here's like the big statement. The gospel brings a disturbance, a disturbance. And when the gospel, okay, the whole of it comes to an individual or when it comes to a city, when it comes to a culture, it should create a disturbance. Jesus came (laughs) to disturb human beings, all right? Out of lethargy, he came to teach us a new way of being human. So last week we looked at this. It disturbed the um, existing church. When Paul got there, there's 12 men who have, they have a stunted gospel. They've just been following the teachings of John the Baptist. They're disturbed. It creates a new group of people who actually have the spirit of God operating through them. It says that Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit animated their voices, their speaking truths. It, it leads to baptisms. It leads to, we read last week, a confrontation between the forces that stand against God and God himself. We read that demonic activity was disrupted when the gospel came to Ephesus. We read that people were experiencing supernatural healing when the gospel came to Ephesus. Now, what we'll do this week is I wanna look at verse 23 and on, and I want us to see how the gospel disrupts this city in three other ways. Before we do that, just a reminder, because as we read this, it's, it's a long time ago and it's hard to even think what is happening, but it's profound. The city is going to be disrupted. Here's two pictures. The first is the theater in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is only about 15% excavated. So 15% is visible, but one of the things that they've excavated is this theater, and what we're gonna read in Acts 19 ends up in this exact spot. So this is massive. I've been there with several of you. Seats 25,000 people. So just to get the scale, think of the Metra, which is here in Yellowstone County, more than twice that size. Okay, this is, this is enormous. And here's the second picture. This is an artist's rendition of the temple to the goddess Artemis, also called Diana. This is one of the seven wonders of the world during the time that the book of Acts is written. It is beautiful, it's profound. It's a place where people travel from all over the Roman Empire to worship the goddess Artemis. It's a female uh, priesthood 
run by females. Males are involved as acolytes, um, but they can only serve and they have to self-castrate themselves before they can serve. And so this is like, just imagine this is the hub. This is what Ephesus is known for. They've been worshiping the goddess Artemis and she's brought them in their perspective, prosperity and peace for decades. Now, what happens in Acts 19 is the gospel is going to threaten a major world religion. Let's read together. Acts 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance. There's our word. About the way. Again, Luke often uses the term the way. In a city called Antioch, the followers of Jesus are called Christians. But through most of the New Testament, people called them followers of the way. It meant that they followed the way of Jesus. Jesus had taught them a new way to be human. They thought differently. They valued different things. They acted differently. And so a great disturbance begins about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, the goddess, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says, this is a fascinating statement we'll talk about. He says, God's made by human hands, the idols, are no gods at all. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. The gospel in the three years that Paul's been there, has had such an impact, such a disturbance, that Demetrius is literally concerned that Artemis will lose her divinity. He sees it as that type of threat. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, And all of them rushed into the theater together, that theater that we just saw. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. They felt he'd be threatened, maybe killed. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Hey, this is a great, great description of a riot right? Don't you think this is behind most riots? Like, what are we doing here? I don't know, but I'm angry. Let's just break something. Okay. So there's just this emotional uproar that is happening. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, the accent that he spoke his Greek with, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, eventually what's going to happen is some of the leaders, Alexander and others are going to get up and say, Hey, 
like Rome doesn't like this type of discord. There's a way to deal with this. These guys haven't stolen anything from the temple of Artemis. They haven't done anything wrong. If you've got a case against them, take them to court and slowly the mob subsides. Okay, three ways that the gospel should disrupt an individual heart or a community as a whole. Number one, first disruption is a financial disruption. A financial disruption. I love that the guy who is most concerned about the impact the gospel is having is a silversmith by the name of Demetrius. He is looking what has happened over the last three years and then he's looking towards the future and he realizes my income is going down. He determines this, that the followers of the way, please hear this, are spending their money differently now that they follow Jesus. People aren't buying the figurines any longer. Let me show you a a couple of pictures so we can get an idea of what is happening in terms of this commerce. So this is probably the most recognized statue of the goddess Artemis. Now, I know what you're asking, what are those things on her chest and belly? Do you really wanna know? There's three options. Number one, they're eggs. She is a fertility goddess and having eggs would have shown that she gives life to the world. Number two, it gets worse as we go. Number two, our breasts, okay? There is a term that Artemis suckled the nation. She kept everybody alive. She blessed business. Number three, most likely, are bull testicles, okay? So remember the uh, men who served in the temple, they had to self-castrate themselves. Well, one of the greatest gifts that you could give to the goddess Artemis is you took a prize bull and you castrated him and then you took his testicles to the temple of Artemis and left them there. How many people are grateful that you came to church this morning and you didn't have to bring anything, okay? (laughs) Isn't that good news? I told you, you didn't wanna know. So this is the goddess Artemis. Now, the next picture is something, there are literally tens of thousands of these found in museums and archeological sites. This is a small figurine about this tall of the goddess Artemis. Now, what we don't have are any that are covered in silver because what people did is they melted the silver off, right? But we have all these terracotta, some of them are marble, some of them are stone sculptures of the goddess Artemis. And so this is what happened on a daily basis is people would travel from other parts of the Roman Empire, from Ephesus itself, and you would go to the temple, this elaborate, gorgeous temple, and you would buy there a statuette of the goddess Artemis that had been blessed by the priestesses. This is what Demetrius is making. He calls together all of the tradesmen, everybody who's been involved from the carving, the terracotta, to then the silver overlay, and you would take your statue of of Artemis, you take her home to wherever your house was and you put her in a shrine or you put her in a high place so that she could look over your family and your business and your fields and bring you success. And Demetrius says, I don't know what's happening here, but people aren't spending their money on the goddess any longer. The followers of the way are looking to someone else 
this person called Jesus to bring them peace and hope and comfort. Now, the Bible, if you read the entire thing, the Old Testament, the New Testament, there's this phrase that comes up over and over. It's even one of the Ten Commandments, idolatry, idolatry. And idolatry is part of the ancient world where you worshiped figurines like that. You worshiped an image of a God. And, and here's, over and over, God just says, like, you just can't do that. That's not okay. So here's what's happening. The followers of the way are laying down their idols. They're no longer worshiping statuettes. They, they, they look at their old, like, statue of Artemis that was in their home, and they realize, you know, I don't need any more of these. In fact, I don't need this one because I worship Jesus now. I look to Jesus for comfort and security and for hope. And so this is no longer needed. There's probably used Artemis statues on the market. <laughs> and, and Demetrius is saying, what are we going to do now? And most of us would go like, okay, okay, idolatry. Like, does anybody have a statue of Artemis at home? Like, I know you'd be scared to death if you did, but your hand came up for, no, you were just putting your arm around somebody. Okay. So most of us look at something like this and we're like, hey, that's not an issue. If we were to define idolatry, it's something like this. It's anything I look to for comfort, for peace, or for hope. Suddenly we realize, oh, we all have a battle with idolatry. We all look to things besides God himself for our hope, for our peace, for our comfort. Part of the, the, the unique irony of all this is that when people begin to follow Jesus, they say, no, I, I've, I've got my peace and my hope in him. And it creates a financial disturbance. Listen, when people follow the way of Jesus, it changes how they spend their money. Wouldn't it be fantastic if somewhere, someday, in your city, in Yellowstone County, wherever you're at, we got to the place where like every drug dealer is depressed because they have to get a nighttime job because they can't make a living anymore. Because the followers of the way no longer spend the money they used to spend. They're like, I don't know, if you're not from Billings, you're not gonna get this, but we have like a casino on every block. What if they cut down in half because they're, I don't know, man, these, these followers of the way, they don't put their hope in a slot machine. Don't put their hope on getting lucky number seven. They put their hope in Jesus. And we just can't make the money that we used to make. See, the gospel disturbs how people spend their resources. Here's the second disturbance. It's a theological, it's a spiritual disturbance. I, I love this phrase where Demetrius says, here's the problem with Paul, is he says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And all idols were made by human hands. See, when you make an idol, here's the beauty of it. Here's why human beings are so tempted is because you can give God the attributes that you desire. You can make a God in your image, right? So I want a God who's uh, kind to me, who makes me wealthy, a God who does all these things. And here's, here's what Demetrius is understanding. Paul presents a God, this gospel God, who isn't made in our image. We're made in his image. And he gets to define himself rather than we define God. 
So this idea of idols, uh, did you know if you looked at Genesis 1 and 2, when God originally created human beings, he looked at them and he said, I want to partner with you. And he makes this beautiful planet. And he says, now here's, I'm giving you authority. Did you know that you were granted authority to serve God, to, to, to watch after his things? He looks at Adam and Eve and he says, I want you to watch after rule, radah in the Hebrew. I want you to rule over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, over the plant and animal life, over every living creature that moves along the ground. I want you to be engaged to help make this world more beautiful. And remember, you have a, a, a spot of authority over this. You're here to make this better. You work for me. Here's the problem with idolatry. I end up worshiping the very things I was told by God to have authority over. I end up worshiping the gold that was found in the ground, the oil that was found in the ground. I end up worshiping the plants that I was called to have authority over. You, you can make an argument of this. Okay, let's just talk about alcohol and drugs for a little while. Man, can they become an idol? Oh, absolutely. But you can make an argument. With alcohol, suddenly I am bowing down and I'm worshiping, if vodka is your drink, I'm worshiping the potato or the corn or the barley. Rather than having authority over it, suddenly it has authority over me. Drugs. It's the poppy plant, it's the cocoa plant, it's the marijuana plant. I was called by God to oversee these things and suddenly I am bowing my knee and worshiping a plant. It has control over me. I'm looking to it for security and peace and hope. And it can be money or it can be sex. Listen, man, I'm gonna just poke on guys for just a second. When, when God designed the earth, he said, look at the woman and cherish her and care for her and be there to support her. Man, when we get into sex addiction, we're talking about pornography and those type of things, what happened? Rather than being a good steward, you bowed your knee and were worshiping the female image. You were never meant to bow your knee to those things. And here's what's happening in Ephesus. People are saying, I'm not gonna worship God's made by human hands. I'm not gonna bow my knee to the things that God asked me to care for and to lead. I'm stepping up in the way that Jesus says, I serve him. I do not serve those things. Here's the third disturbance. Okay, the third disturbance is a social disturbance. Uh, I love that even Demetrius says, guys, we gotta do something about this. Yeah, they're not spending money the same way and they don't worship the old gods made by human hands. But we gotta be careful because it's impacting the whole city and the provinces of Asia. These people's values are different. They believe that Jesus taught them a new way to be a human being. And as they follow the way of Jesus, they're exercising a new form of humanity that has compassion and care and love and respect. They, when they look at other human beings, they really believe that other human beings are, are special and sacred and made in the image of God. There's a complete disturbance and the social framework of what is happening in Ephesus. I, I wanna conclude by reading three historical texts, okay? One of them's modern, but two are historical. And here's what they do. 
they point to and they tell us how the gospel disturbed cultures. First one is written in 112 AD. And it's written by a man named Pliny the Younger. Pliny is the governor at the time of what we call Turkey today. So Ephesus is found in Turkey. Okay, so this is like really close in terms of time. This is, he was probably talking about Ephesus in particular. And Pliny is confused by the Christians and their impact in 112 AD. Okay, early, early on. And he writes to Emperor Trajan to get Trajan's expertise and how to deal with the Christians. And this is what he says. The matter seems to me worthy of your consideration, emperor, especially as there are so many people involved in the danger. You know what Pliny calls Christians? Part of the danger, right? Many persons of all ages and both sexes alike are being brought into peril of their lives by their accusers and the process will go on for the contagion, the contagion of this superstition, he's talking about being a follower of the way of Jesus, has spread not only through the free cities, but into the villages and the rural districts. And yet it seems to me that it can be checked and set right. It is beyond doubt that the temples, which have been almost deserted, are beginning again to be thronged with worshipers, that the sacred rites, which have for a long time been allowed to lapse, are now being renewed, and that the food for the sacrificial victims is once more finding a sale, whereas up till recently, a buyer was hardly to be found. From this, it is easy to infer what a vast numbers of people might be reclaimed if only they were given an opportunity of repentance. Arguably, the world's strongest, longest lasting empire, the Roman Empire. A governor who oversaw the city of Ephesus says some Jewish tecton, tecton, that's how Jesus is described. It's a manual labor. Uh, we translate it carpenter, but it is most likely a stonemason. A Jewish tecton who never traveled more than 100 away, miles away from the city he was born in, who never wrote down anything, has disrupted the Roman Empire and caused the temples to be in jeopardy. See, this is the disturbance. The teachings of Jesus, the way of Jesus makes an empire nervous. Here's the next one. This is written about 382 BC by the emperor Julian. I just finished a biography on Julian. Julian, Constantine was two emperors before him. Constantine made Christianity the official Roman religion. And then Julian reverts back and he refers to Christians as Galileans. And this is what he says as emperor. It is disgraceful that when no Jews ever had to beg and the impious Galileans, that's how he called Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Julian is emperor of Rome, is disturbed because Jews and Christians care for the poor and the sick and the broken. The last is from a theologian that I respect, and he is writing about 
In reference, right about 280, there was a plague spread through the Roman Empire. And Constantinople, in specific, this plague is ravaging the city and people are dying by the tens of thousands. And here's what you did if you were a Roman. If it was your mom, your dad, your spouse, your child who was sick, to preserve your life and the life of everyone else who was healthy, if there was a plague, you put people into the street and you locked the door and you just left them because to preserve your life was more important than any compassion or mercy. This is the first recorded hospital, hostile care that we've ever seen, okay? Christians began to go through the streets in Constantinople and pick up all those who had been pushed outside and they would care for them and give them dignity in their death. This is what uh, Dr. Gary Ferngren says. The perception that the church had an obligation to care for the poor was basic to the founding of the earliest hospitals. The hospital was in origin and conception a distinctly Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that hospitals were created to serve, namely the offering of charitable aid, particularly of healthcare to those in need. The way Jesus changes a culture it changes a life. Yes, it's about my eternity. That is so important. But it is about a new way to be human. It's about restoration of us and of the world. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.